From the uh, uh, questions to the editor department of a local newspaper. Question. Do worms talk? If not, how do they communicate? Signed, N.W. Little Neck. <laughs> uh, answer. Uh, the manner of communication between all forms of animal and plant life has long fascinated biologists and zoologists but these scientists have not yet been able to tune in on any conversation between worms. If there is any manner of communication, it is probably, one expert says, uh, and we quote here, rather haphazard and only recognized or seen by worms and not human beings. Whatever has been discovered or proved about the earthworm can be found in college textbooks in general biology or zoology. Next question, please. Next question. How did I get the march for crying out loud? Hold it there. All right, that's enough. <laughs> crying out loud. Next question, please. Now, that, now, now I, I have to repeat this question again. Do worms talk? If so, how they communicate? Now, I am particularly fascinated by the answer here. The answer says, uh, I have to repeat this because, you know, I, I've known one thing, that when people get into the show, at least for the first five minutes, you have to repeat everything all over again for the first five minutes because they're not quite with it. They're still involved in the weather forecast, the news, and uh, Al McCann and all that stuff that goes before. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to get used to listening. And uh, so I'll have to repeat this again. The manner of communication between all forms of animals and plant life has long fascinated biologists and zoologists. But these scientists have not yet been able to tune in on any conversation between worms. <laughs> if there's any manner... Uh, here is the most significant of all sentences in this. If there is any manner of communication... Of course, we presume they mean between worms. It is probably, one expert says, rather haphazard and is only recognized or seen by the worms 
and not humans. Now, what they're trying to say is we don't know their talk. Uh, <laughs> that's another way that we don't know the language. However, I will say this, uh, <laughs> and, and this comes from at least 5,000 years of experiment, experimenting and experience in mass communication, one kind or another, writing, uh, tap dancing, juggling, doing radio programs, blowing a bazoo, all kinds of things, that no matter what animal form you are deciding to study, the means of communication is, and we quote, rather haphazard. Uh, I, 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 would, I would submit to whatever paper that is. I think it's the Post. That's the kind of angry stuff. I, whatever I, I would submit to, uh, to whatever paper it is, that uh, communication between human beings is extremely haphazard. And in fact, it is totally impossible for a guy, let's say, who reads the New York Times to honestly make any sense out of two or three other newspapers in New York that seem to make total sense to the guys that read them. And yet the same language is being used. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this problem of communication and what do worms talk about. And, and another thing down at the bottom, it says anything about earthworms, anything that's been discovered or proved about earthworms can be found in college texts. Oh, come on. Come on, in a pig's foot. Did you ever find anything in a college textbook that had anything to do with anything you've ever found out about anything? Absolutely not. They'll talk to you about the, the uh, internal structure of the worm that does not, that has no relationship to what a guy's doing with the worm standing out there in the field. Uh, they will, they will discuss uh, reproduction of worms, maybe. Uh, but let me tell you something about worms. Uh, there is a play, in fact, uh, and I don't recall who it was who did it. But there is a play that has to do, oh, I think it's Beckett. It has to do with people burrowing, burrowing under, under the surface of the soil. Burrowing. Just burrowing. Two individuals burrowing, trying to make contact one with the other. Trying to make contact and never quite achieving it. Just burrowing through the darkness. And once in a while, feeling the slight feeling that something has moved near them. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, that's right. How it is is the name of the play. Now, cut it out, Tony. That's it. Now, the problem, the problem here uh, is that we have the illusion of communication. All of us have the illusion of this. We, we feel that we're, we perfectly understand one another because we have words and because we somehow seem to muddle through, as the British would say. Uh, we somehow uh, have been able to exist, but then again, so have worms. Uh, then again, so have owls. Uh, so have muskrats. And, and uh, yet uh, the, the illusion of communication always exists. You know, speaking of worms, and, and a couple of months ago we did a show on worms, and if you're a lady type, I'm going to tell you something about worms here that will not appear on uh, in any college textbook about worms. Uh, yes, yeah, so there are a lot of things about worms that I, I'm sure do not appear in any of the encyclopedias. And as an old worm digger, as a man who has lived among worms, and in fact who in many ways is a worm, uh, to a man who has a rapport with a worm, uh, the, the whole life, the mystique of worms takes on a totally, well, takes on additional colorations. You look it up in the world book, you won't get the same scene. And I, I, what I remember particularly, one little incident about worms, if you're, if you're interested in that New York Post or whatever paper it was that was sounding off so blasé and so loudly about worms. 
I'll tell you, yeah, only a New Yorker could have written that. It says, anything you want to know about worms will be found in the college textbook. Well, uh, any guy who's trying to dig worms on a hot afternoon in, in September or, or late August out in the Midwest will not find any information on the problem that he has in the world book. He will not find any dope in a general textbook on biology or zoology at the current library. He just won't. And I remember one, one of the, one of the, one of the worst moments I've had in years dealing with nature came when my old man announced years and years ago, he announced that we were going to go fishing. And he says, we're going fishing Saturday. And he says, I want, now Jeannie, your job is to dig the worms. You dig the worms and I'll take you fishing and the whole, you know, the whole scene, my kid brother and everybody. It's a big, you know, it's a big, uh, it's an expedition generally. Uh, we are going to go and we're going to go to the lake. We're going to get in the car and going to the lake was about 25 miles away. And it was a, it was an exciting thing, very exciting. Well, I started to dig for worms on about a Tuesday. And I dug and dug. I remember the hot sun is beating down and I went to all the places I knew where the worms were because I had been digging worms for a long time, for years. And somehow, suddenly, out of, without any knowledge by us, by me, by the, by the earth people walking around on the top, the worms had migrated. They just weren't there. They, there was not a worm. You could see their holes. You could dig, I'm digging down, you know, and you dig and dig and sweating, and I'm getting more and more frantic because now it is roughly Thursday night, and I gotta have the worms by Friday night, and I have about three little skinny worms that were caught in the, in the, you know, in the tail end of the migration. They didn't get out of the, out of the rock or something quick enough. And I have a three little skinny blood worms yet. They're not even good worms, you know? And, and that's about the extent of it. And every day I'm out digging in the afternoon. I've given up baseball. I've given up the whole scene. I'm not doing anything but dig worms because Friday night the old man wants to look at the worms and Saturday morning we're going off to the lake. We're going to Kennedy Lake, which was a big, fantastic deal for us. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm working towards it. But no worms, no worms at all. And I had dug trenches seven feet deep. And I'm going deeper and deeper and deeper until finally I'm reaching water and sand. And I'm digging different, different holes all under the great willow trees. We had willow trees that hung in a vacant lot where it was recognized that this is the whole, this was the world capital of worms. And they're not there. It's like coming all the way from Cleveland to come to the big city, to come to New York, and there aren't any people. Somehow everybody in New York has left. Just disappeared. You go into Sardis, nobody. You go to the World's Fair, nothing. There's just that big tin can called the Unisphere standing up there. Nothing. There's nothing a anywhere. No, and you, you'd be scared. You look around and say, where are the people? You'd get a little frantic. And believe me, you would not want to visit New York long. Well, there is a sense of fear when you're digging in the earth for the worms, and the worms aren't gone. I cannot describe it to you. The worms aren't there. They're gone. That I'm digging and digging and digging. My kid brother's digging. Bruner's digging. We're all digging. We are going under rocks. And once in a while, we'd come across a grub. And you know what is it? A grub. This is a, a thick white worm with a sort of a dark blue head, millions of little feet. This is a grub. They, the, I, I, the rumor was that grubs grow up either in the turtles. We couldn't quite figure out what it was. I'm talking about a Hammond, Indiana kid rumor that they grew up to be turtles or they grew up to be June bugs. I don't know which it was. <laughs> the grubs. And there, were all, there was always talk of a scientific experiment where Flick was going to take a grub home and grow it. And uh, he was going to, we never could figure out quite what to feed a grub. If we could do that, we could take him home and grow it and see whether he turned into a turtle or a June bug or maybe a rock. 
But that was the theory. And so we're digging and digging and digging. No worms. And, and, and after about three days of this digging, and after maybe three or four worms had been uncovered, there was the eerie feeding that everybody had cut out, that the worms had actually left and disappeared. Well, uh, finally came Friday Friday night, and the old man is home. No worms, absolutely no worms. I said, no worms. I couldn't get any worms. And he says, no worms. And I said, yes, because it was always in our family you dug worms. You did not buy worms. No one ever went to the place that says worms, you know, on the side of the road, worms. And you just didn't do that. It's not done. That's all. Any more than 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 uh, when I was, there were a lot of things like that. You know, nobody nobody ever went and uh, and bought notebooks that were already had file things in them. You made notebooks that had file things. There's a lot of things you didn't do, and so you didn't buy worms. And the old man says, "No worms," and the implication is, "Well, forget it. No fishing tomorrow. No worms." And I says, no, no worms. He says, well, you're, you're not going to get, you're, you're just not going to, the blue, the bluegills are not going to hit on dough balls. we got to have worms. And so the word is out, no worms. Well, the next morning, it is now Saturday, you see. We're heading towards Kennedy Lake, and the kids are sitting on the back seat. There is the air already hanging over the car of incipient failure and disaster. Already, this, is, this should have been a gala occasion. You know, we're going to, we're going to Kennedy Lake to catch the fish, or at least going. And, and here it was, no worms. And so we're about 10 miles out of town, and we see the first sign that says worms. We go into the house. The old man goes up on the porch, and the kids are trailing behind, knock on the door. Have you ever knocked on the door of a place on the side of the road that says hook rugs for sale? You, ever, you haven't done that? Well, that's an experience. You've ever really seen this? You've seen the signs, I trust, hook rugs for sale. Have you ever, have you ever uh, seen those big signs along the side of the road that says Jesus saves? Oh, you've seen those. All right. Have you seen? Uh, I'm amazed at how many signs people in this world just don't see. They just don't see them at all. We're so sign in your too that most of us don't. See. If if you put up a sign that says the end of the world tomorrow morning at two, nobody'd see it. But if you put up a big sign that says beer, they never miss. Uh, that's the truth. I mean, everybody uh, speaking of beer, bring on that little whoopee thing. We might as well get it out of the way there. <laughs> Never cut my mic. That's desperate there. What's this? A Miller Tono tape. What's a Miller Tono tape? This is the time of the year for outdoor cooking when backyard chefs everywhere are finding out how good food tastes. Even better when it's enjoyed with Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. When you're standing around out there in the yard with all the worms crawling underneath your feet, Miller High Life gives you a flavor that's deep down goodness, sparkling with special lightness. Makes you forget that you're just part of that great world out there, and that any minute now, a big bolt of lightning is liable to belt you right out in the left field. So right now, your favorite store is featuring Miller High Life in colorful picture packs of six 12-ounce cans. Look for Miller High Life package with the Backyard Banquet. High Life will be on your backyard barbecue all the way. Brewed only in, of all places, Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's terrible. No, it's brewed in Milwaukee. Everything is brewed in Milwaukee. You know that. The whole world was brewed in Milwaukee. That's uh, Miller High Life. How is it? What happened to us? I thought for, la for the last couple of months we've been ale men. All of a sudden we're pitching Miller High Life. Well, that's it. Perfidy, thy name is W-O-R, AM and FM, New York. We will be here. What was that that Burr Lives used to holler in that play? Uh, it was not a very good play. Uh, yeah, he was, he was always standing up. He was saying, what was the great word he was using all the time? Was a, 
Uh, I, I, I felt what happened was that Tennessee Williams heard that word, and he decided to write a whole play on it. Uh, yeah, I remember. Let's see, what was the word? He says, uh, mendacity. Yeah. He, he, he's walking around, he's saying, mendacity, lad. <laughs> mendacity, that's the way the world goes. Mendacity, why, when your mother and I were first married, I'll never forget a trip we took to Araby. You probably don't remember going to Araby, boy. But I remember one time sitting on a park bench in Araby. You wouldn't believe that country. Everybody walking around dirty and smelly, walking around there digging in the dirt. And I said to my wife, your mother, lad. Yeah, big mama. I said to her, mendacity. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is, uh, my name is W-O-R, A-M at F-M, New Yorkie. I suggest you look that. What does the word mean? Well, it doesn't matter. It's a great word. And uh, we'll be here for a while. Uh, who cares what, uh, what uh, you want to hear? Well, oh, don't worry. I'm not through with the worms. I'm never through with worms. And for, for <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was amazed to find out that when I did a show on worms, probably the first show ever done in the world on the radio in a popular medium on worms. And I'm not talking about the little kind of shows, you know, they do in the early morning at 7 o'clock or 6 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning when Uncle Fred, the farm expert, comes on and he talks about milking cows. I'll tell you, you <laughs> I, I've uh, been involved in a couple of those. I'll never forget one commercial they had for cows. You wouldn't believe some of the things they do to cows. Yeah, and it came right out on the air in a commercial. We'll send that uh, script to you uh, if you're over 21. Signed, uh, you must provide the certification of age there, son. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the worm problem uh, seems to have touched a deep inner cord of fear in most people. I did the show here about worms, and I got a tremendous outpouring of mail. I guess uh, seven letters there. And uh, five of them were for ladies who said, please tell us more about the earthworm. And uh, something about earthworms. Well, I'm going to tell you. One night, uh, speaking of earthworms, and this, uh, well, maybe we, we'll, I'll finish the first story and tie it in with the second because they're very both, they're connected. Don't for one minute think. And this is the point, I suppose, of all this jazz here tonight. That, that we know, honestly, you know, the, the illusion that we know things, that as long as you can put as much jabberwocky as you want in a book, lay it down, bind it in cardboard, put a little, uh, put a little glue on the back of it and some gilt on the back of that, and put it on a library shelf with a number on it, number 1722D, General Knowledge, uh, Intimate Biology of Worms. You figure you know, you really do. I think man has, 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 uh, we, we, for the past, possibly the past two, three, maybe three thousand years, have been embarked on the greatest, well, it's the only one, because man is the only animal that we know of that's capable of it, the greatest mass delusion ever in the history of the solar system that we honestly know. I would, I would, I would submit that probably 95% of, quote, knowledge that we have accumulated, we, and I'm talking about the, 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 the whole race, us, mankind, I'd say about 90% of the knowledge that we have accumulated is myth, it's dream, it's rumor, it's innuendo, it's uh, floating little pieces of gray clouds, which somehow we've been able to capture with butterfly nets and put inside of, uh, inside of covers. <laughs> and the other, the other 5% we don't want to look at. 
that 5% we don't even deal with. I'm telling you, we, we run we run as far away. What I'm really saying is that how much of anything can you really believe? Now, man is very great on, on technical things. He really is the, the scene. He can tell you how many, uh, how many types of turtles there are. He really can. He can tell you the shape and the, uh, the color of the various eggs laid by various types of robins. He's very good at that kind of thing. And he puts it all down in the book and then thinks he knows about robins. He thinks because he can count the number of toes that a, that a turtle has, he knows about turtles. Well, let me tell you about the worm. So we have now traveled about 20 miles. You get it? You see, we're on the way to Lake Kennedy. And, and for the whole week, my kid brother and, and Bruner and Flick, we've been digging for these lousy worms. And the worms have cut out. We've been digging worms in that field ever since we were about five. We are now about, uh, you know, ten. And, and we're old worm men. We knew where the worms were. And they were gone. Every last lousy, rotten worm was gone from the field. And we had been digging night and day now for four days. We are now on our way to Kennedy Lake with the fear of failure hanging over the, the Graham page. It's just floating like a, like a free-form cloud of defeat floating over the Graham page as it's heading towards Kennedy Lake. Well, we get about 20 miles from town, maybe 10 miles, and there's the first sign that says, Worms! You know, it's written out there, Worms. So we go up, and the old man is pounding on the door, and old, old Rafe comes to the door, who has been, who's been existing on the worm market now for the last 27 years, and his wife has been taking in washing, and uh, once in a while he gets a chance to wash an Essex or two in the neighborhood, and he mows the lawn down at the library, and this is the way he lives. You see, there's a lot of guys out in the Midwest who exist like that and are not considered bums or anything like that. They're just the guys in the neighborhood. So we stop at old Rafe's place, and the old man knocks on the door, and Rafe comes to the door and says, What do you want? He says, Worms. He's got no worms. And the old man says, What? What do you mean you got no worms? You got a sign out in the front that says, Worms. All the worms are gone this week. And I'm standing back there on the porch. Remember, this guy's ten miles away from our house. The worms are gone this week. He just looks as though, well, that's the way worms are. They leave. They cut out for a couple of weeks in the summer, you know, vacation, all that stuff. And he just looks out at you and says, they're gone. Well, we get back in the car and we drive on. We go about maybe another three or four miles and there's another sign, worms. And this time it's a lady. And she comes out and says, worms are gone this week. The worms are gone this week. Well, we finally arrive at the banks of Kennedy Lake. Now, Kennedy Lake is thickly encrusted with little shacks with big signs that say worms. <laughs> it's just, they ring them like barnacles, you know, between the beer halls and the dance halls and the roller rinks. There's a, there's a, there's a thick encrustation of worm places all the way around the lake. Well, of course, we pull into the first joint. We, we drive the car down into the weeds and get out, kick aside all the tin cans and the snails and stuff, and walk on down to the muddy shores, and there's the first worm place. And the old man bangs on the door, which was made of a Coca-Cola sign, and the door opens, and there's a guy standing in there. You know, he's, <laughs> he's drinking a can of beer, and the old man says, Worms. He says, All I got's grubs. My father says, I only use worms. The worm's gone this week. Well, now, I don't know whether any of this is to be found in the world book. Do they say in the world book that the worms disappear from time to time? Just go. Now, you're going to tell me that they go deeper. That's the illusion. Well, they go deeper. Do they? I'll tell you this. Old Rafe dug halfway to China. 
Because, you know, his world was depending on worms to get him. That's all. If he didn't get worms, he didn't have his beer Saturday night. That was all there was to it. And, boy, a guy will dig like an insane maniac if he lives in a shack in Indiana and he's not going to have beer on Saturday night when they're selling fish three for a quarter. And so he had, he dug holes, you know, the, the, made the, the entire county, it was, it was dangerous to walk on the surface of the ground. The county was just going to collapse and sink 150 feet. That was how many holes and tunnels had been dug throughout Lake County, Indiana, looking for worms. No worms. Worms are gone. Well, all I can tell you is that we spent three and a half miserable hours in the mud flats down there, digging around, trying to, trying to look for what, what they call newts. Now, you know what is it, a newt? I'll tell you about a newt. I mean, I could go on to that. <laughs> a newt is like a frog that never made it. Uh, it's also, a newt is like a lizard that chickened out somewhere along the line. It didn't, go, didn't quite become a lizard. And uh, also, a newt is uh, sort of like, uh, if you can imagine, a bullhead with feet. And he never quite made it as a bullhead. And a newt is, is, a, is a very unloved creature. And once in a while, people will, will only in rare cases, in terrible extremities, when the, when the, in extremis, when the worms have gone to Michigan or wherever it is they go for their vacation, will guys look for the newts. And then, on the, of course, the, the illusion, of course, is that they'll never get newts. They never do. No one ever finds a newt. You find maybe one or two a year. And, and you will spend your entire afternoon at the lake looking for newts, knowing full well that you're not going to get any fish anyway, because the fish don't bite when the worms aren't around. Now, these things are all tied in. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Indiana facts. Uh, it is none of this stuff, none of this stuff will be found in, in books. Now, now, uh, there, there are several very, there are several theories about this. One theory is that the, that, that the moon is wrong. He'll say, well, I'll tell you, it's because the moon is on the dark side. Well, that's when the worms cut out. Somehow, the, the, the worms are very, very sensitive to what happens to the moon. Now, this is one theory. Another theory is, well, it's the ground is dry. Well, you'll say to them, but the ground the ground has been dry since the year 1048. It has not rained in this county now since since the oldest resident can remember. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to be a smart aleck? That's the answer to that one. So he will continue to believe that it's because the ground is dry, even if he's knee deep in water digging. Doesn't make any difference. He's the ground is a little too dry today. And he'll look down there, and that's the end of that. Every guy has his own explanation, and it is cataloged under the general heading of knowledge. <laughs> now, if Rafe were to write a book on worms, he would put it all down in black and white. The ground's too dry, and uh, not only that, the worms uh, have a tendency to be very sensitive and to leave for Michigan when the moon is on the dark side. Well, then you ask him, well, what in the devil does it mean the moon is on the dark side? He said, what do you mean, smart aleck? Everyone knows what the moon is on the dark side. Nobody knows, of course. Uh, so this this is a catalog as general knowledge. Uh, the worm, the worm scene is a, is a, is a is a thing that everyone knows in uh, in in wormology uh, knows is is a thing that is fraught with all kinds of mysteries, totally mystery. Now, where did the worms go? Who knows? I can't tell you. Everyone's going to say, "Now tell us the end. Where did they go?" <laughs> Well, Rafe has been fighting that since uh, about 1908. He still doesn't know. If he did, he would corner the worm market in all of Indiana. But he isn't going to. Now, uh, I'll tell you some more things that are not listed in the, in the books about worms. Worms, no matter how deep they are underground, are very sensitive to certain kinds of noises. Are you aware of that? I'll tell you one of the things you can do if you want to try uh, messing around with worms. 
Uh, you can, you know, have you ever, have you ever, uh, fooled around in junkyards and looked for busted springs, car springs? Well, you know, the leaves and cars, springs, have you ever seen them that are often used as tire tools? Guys will take them and they'll sharpen the end. They use it as a tire tool. They'll do all kinds of things because that's a very handy piece of metal, you know, that's made of good spring steel. And uh, as kids, we used to spend a good, uh, a good percentage of our Saturday afternoons fooling around the dump looking for car springs. Now, that's the big leaves, you know, the big long leaves. And once in a while, when you find a proper leaf that is at a right length and it has a certain resonant frequency, if you hit it with a hammer, you take it out in a field, and you, you, you tie a string around it so it'll swing free, you know, so that it does not, uh, you don't dampen it with your fingers. You tie a string around it and you hit it with a ball peen hammer. And you just stand there and you keep your can at ready, Dad, because the worms are going to be jumping into your lap. Somehow this is a worm concert and they can't stand it. And you just stand out there. Now, the, the, the thing that I'm, 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 I'm have to make very clear to you here is that not every tire piece of metal, not every spring works. It has to be a specific... Now, you can get two of them that sound exactly alike. You can tune them, yeah. You, you keep busting it off until they both... Sound, one will work and the other won't. Now, why? Well, you're going to say to me that the subtle overtones are not quite the same. Well, I have seen guys try this scene with oscilloscopes... I've seen them run Lissajou figure uh, uh, analysis on the on the sound created by a specific uh, 1929 Essex busted spring. I've seen guys try 1948 Oldsmobiles. It was reputed, incidentally, in case you're interested, that the Buick Century uh, was had the best tire spring to be found for worming. Now, they were terrible tire springs in the cars. They were busting all the time. That's why we could get them, you see. But they were great for worms. I don't know whether the General Motors knows that it. <laughs> yeah, there were a certain width or something, and everyone would look for the for the springs. And in fact, you'd walk down the street and you'd see uh, this Buick Century, and guys' hands would itch. They just want to get under the rear axle and take them springs right out of there. You know, they knew they could make a fortune in worms. So, so if you if you hold it at a right the right angle, you hit it goes like that, and the worms stick their head up out of the ground, and they say, "More, more, bravo, bravo!" Oh, author, author, bravo! You hit them, and as they come up to hear more of this great music that is being produced by the rear spring, the, the leaf of a rear spring of a 1929 Essex or a 1938 Chevy or a 1948 Buick, you just have your accomplice running around out there and picking them up like mad. Now, that is not found in the world book. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> to those of you who believe this jazz you read in the paper, do worms talk? If not, how do they communicate? I might suggest that, that uh, it is possible to communicate with a worm. I have done it with a tire spring. I've done it. Uh, now, do you want to hear other, 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 uh, other sounds of wormology? I'll tell you another one. Okay. All right. You want to hear more? Okay. Have you ever had, have you ever seen a croquet ball? You've all seen croquet balls. All right. Now I'm going to tell you some other little trickies you can do. Take two croquet balls. Now you have to, again, select them very carefully. You can go through all the croquet sets in the neighborhood. And, uh, I, everybody in our neighborhood had a croquet set in the basement. Nobody played croquet. Somewhere along the line, everybody had been given and it was equipped, just like human beings are equipped with an appendix. When they come, they don't, very few of us take out our appendix and do any appendixing. Uh, but there it is, it's hanging down there like an old useless thing. 
Well, everyone somewhere along the line in the entire Midwest comes totally equipped. That's the part of the total equipment of the human being out there is one croquet set. And so, uh, yes, one croquet set comes to everybody. And so there was in every basement you could find a croquet set all covered with mold and rust. And once in a great while on long, hot summer afternoons, a mother would say, you could hear her say, after the kids have been hollering that there's nothing to do for about two weeks, she'd say, why don't you go downstairs and take out the croquet set and play croquet? Eh! That would be the end of that. <laughs> so uh, I don't know uh, what the scene is with croquet, but the, everyone had them. Now, now we did find one use for croquet outside of the mallets themselves, which were very useful under certain conditions. And I can remember various mallets being used for... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I'll tell you the time about the Stanfords when they had a croquet duel out in the backyard with croquet mallets. Uh, you don't want to hear that story. It was terrible. When Mr. and Mrs. Stanford were belting each other on the head with croquet mallets, and nobody even knew that they were interested in sport. You know, they were two fat people. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. Everybody's saying he's making this up. I'll tell you the time I saw a man and wife have a duel out in the backyard with rug beaters. I saw a man and wife fight it out with rug beaters. They were, it was, it was a wild scene. I, I, <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, you see all kinds of real life things. When you're, when you're an older person, you turn your back and walk away. You keep saying, I don't want to get involved. Well, the first thing a kid wants to do is to get involved. I'm going to tell you, a kid, kid loves to get involved in fights and yellings and so on. The, the, immediately when, when a big yelling breaks out in somebody's backyard, every kid in the neighborhood runs like mad for it. Whereas all the adults in the neighborhood go towards the car barns, you know, they leave. <laughs> well, one day, one day on a, on a hot, quiet, uh, on a hot afternoon, it was a wild scene, uh, <laughs> uh, I could, I could hear, you know, the, you could always hear the sound of rug being beaten. Uh, the rug sound was a common sound in our neighborhood. You know, punk. You hear punk. Somebody is beating a rug in the neighborhood. Punk. And you'd see the little cloud of dust flying. They, what you do is to take the rug and hang it over a wash line. And have you ever seen? Nobody even sees rug beaters. They don't even know what a rug beater looks like. Well, a rug beater is a big fly swatter. It's a big metal uh, thing. It's made out of big twisted. It's metal, you know, big metal wire thing. And it's got a handle on the end. And you just hit the rug with it. This was before uh, glamorine and all that stuff. And people used to just beat the daylights out of the rug. And I say this that when Glamourine came in and all these rug shampoo preparations, war became more and more inevitable. I, I submit that man took a lot of his aggressions out on his carpet. I submit that a lot of people today who are beating the heads of their wives and neighbors in with, with uh, blunt instruments would have yesterday taken it all out on the Oriental rug, the 9 by 12 that they got from Sears Roebuck. Because, oh, yeah, it was a tremendous whole afternoon of hitting stuff. And, and you'd run around, you know, and you, there were, there were these patterns, you know, there would be various patterns. You'd hit the top, boom, and stuff would fly, boom, you'd hit the bottom, the rug is swinging. So I remember one afternoon hearing the sound of a rug being beaten, boom, it just goes, boom, you know, that sound, boom, and it was just a common sound in the neighborhood, you heard it all the time, boom, and then I heard a little yelling. It was coming down from down by the Stanford's or someplace down around the end of the block, boom, a little yelling out in the back. And whoever the woman was, I don't recall now, the old lady was standing up on the back porch yelling down at the guy. She was telling him how to beat the rug. You know, this is always the problem. You're not doing it right. You know, Why don't you know? And the next thing you know, she is in the house and she's got a rug beater. Down the steps she goes and you hear boom, 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 boom. 
inevitably it had to happen. Within within five minutes, you hear a lot of hollering and screaming, and all the kids are pouring down the down the neighborhood, and they're running up and down the alleys. And we're looking in through the fence. They had the fence with all the geraniums and stuff. And we're looking in through the fence, and there are the two of them belting at each other with rug beaters. And I don't know whether you've ever seen a big fat lady getting swatted on the girdle with a rug beater. It is a sight you will never forget. I'll tell you. And then she spins around. She was a lefty and catches him on the side of the ear with a rug beater. And the dust comes out the other ear, you know. <laughs> Well, it was all part of the life, you know. You, you begin to understand a little more about it. You know, it's funny when you when you hear these these trivial little arguments that are that are promoted as as big deals in things like, uh, well, uh, Virginia Woolf. You know, Virginia Woolf is a is a is a play just about an argument. It goes on for four and four or five hours. That's all. Well, back home in Indiana, that would have ended about the second. I'd say about the second scene. <laughs> the the lady would have run down in the basement to get a croquet mallet. And, and the old man would have reached for his rug beater, and they would have had it out right there in the kitchen. And, of course, 20 minutes later, they'd have been sitting there eating salami sandwiches and drinking beer, and that's the end of it. Well, anyway, you want to get back to the worms. I'll tell you about the croquet mallet scene. That if you take croquet, somewhere, I don't know how the scientific work was done on this. I am I'm never, I am uh, always wondering about that. I'm, I'm always curious about how original truly original discoveries are made. Now, I'm talking about truly original discoveries, like the man who ate the first clam. Now, that was an original discovery, and uh, it took a lot of work. I mean, it wasn't so simple. You know, everyone says, well, you know, you know it's just something you eat clams. No, 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 no. They didn't have seafood restaurants then, and uh, they didn't cost $27 for six, you know, and they didn't call them on the half shell. Here was this lump that looked like a rock. It did. You know, a clam looks like an absolute rotten-looking rock when you see it. It looks like a particularly cruddy rock. What kind of research, what kind of thinking went into the first man opening the first clam and then deciding to put it into his trap? Now, that took a... That, that, you see, there must have been countless work done in the field before the, the, the final statement was made, you see. The first one just picked it up and looked at it. It's a very good rock. Wow, interesting rock. You know, this is a good rock. Threw it back. This went on for about 10 million years, guys, finding these funny rocks. Then one day, one guy found a funny rock that was open. It was funny. And he said, oh, rock, crack. Stuck his finger in it. Going, the clam got him right by the finger. He said, oh, oh, rock, rock. Stuck on rock. Rock, biting rock. By the way, do you know that the word clam in the original Neanderthal means rock that bites? I'm serious, you know, all these people, yeah, clam, the clam, that we have still with us some Neanderthalic words that go back, yes, to the Neanderthal days that have nothing to do with Indian or Egyptian or English or Chinese, words like clam. Now, Neanderthal words are very simple. They usually sound like a belch. They do. Uh, the original man was like that, clam. Well, now, clam is a word that goes back to the original Neanderthalic. We all are part of the Neanderthalic world. Every last one of us. No matter what race, creed, religion, color, no matter what we are, we go back to that world. Clam. Well, now, the word clam means rock. Rock that bite. Clam. Well, now, how did it come to be clam? Well, I'll tell you what happened. One day, guy's reaching down there looking for the funny rock. Got his finger in there. The clam... Or, clam! He hollered like that. You know, just an exclamation. Somebody says, clam, what clam? His rock got bite. 
Clam. Well, the next thing you know, the word spread all up and down the lake. Be careful of clam. Clam. And they'd say, what clam? Rock that bite clam. There it is. And so today, it is now 90 cents for six of them on the half shell. But nevertheless, there was a lot of research that went into the first guy. That, now, how did the first guy do it? I'll tell you how the first guy did it. 300, 400 eons passed. Guys are getting bitten by clams. Now, you see, they've, they've already gone the first step. Now they're getting bitten. Hundreds of guys get bitten. Then one day, a guy got bitten particularly virulently by a clam. He sticks finger in mouth. There's a long pregnant pause. Tastes good. Well, now they went 300 years that way. Guys would just stick their finger in a clam, hoping to get bitten, and then they would say, oh, oh, tastes good. Then it took over a thousand years for one far-thinking individual to say, me not wait, clam bite, me go get clam. He goes down, grabs clam, oh, 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 crack it open, oh, it open. And the clam is jumping around, he, he reaches in, open the mouth, oh, clam, good. There you go. The whole seafood industry was on its way. Man began. Well, now I can't tell you how the original research was done on the croquet ball technique with the worms. But I can tell you this. If you find two proper croquet balls that are tuned right, they're like Chinese wood blocks, you place them on the ground. Now, for those of you who are interested, the best croquet balls are the kinds with the yellow stripe. There is, the, And the yellow and the blue ones do pretty good, too. Take two croquet balls, place them on the ground, and go, ooh, 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 ooh. hit them together with your hand. Ooh, 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 ooh. Within 15 seconds, there are 48,000 insane croquet nutty worms. Worms that dig croquet are coming up like mad. <laughs> croquet balls will do it every time. Now that you have to get the proper croquet balls. And I can remember spending long afternoons with Flick and Bruner and Schwartz going around to everybody's basement looking up all the croquet balls and taking them out into the fields and trying them out. <laughs> now where? And it works. It works. You will not find this in the world book. Croquet has a very close affinity with worms. It is not said in the encyclopedias, nor is it said in the zoological textbooks. And so now, where does the original research go? Yes, honey, I see it. You stick it in my finger. The next thing you know, you're going to have a horn that you'll blow in there. I know. So <laughs> she loves to do that. I, I knew a producer once who was frozen, and that's, you know, just pointing, you know, that kind of thing, pointing. Everybody's doing it. The whole show's going, still pointing for two and a half acts. <laughs> but nevertheless, friends, there are many things which I think are uncatalogued, unclassified. Now, now, if uh, <laughs> oh, you think you know about yourself, huh? I think you know. Well, I, I repeat the question: Do worms talk? If not, how do they communicate? Well, do people talk? I don't know. Do they communicate? I have to repeat again. Here is the expert says rather haphazard. Quite true. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that, that most of what I said tonight to a city dweller, to an urbanite, sounds like balderdash and gibberish. Listen to this nut here, making this stuff up. Oh, yeah? Get a couple of croquet balls and try it, Fred. Get a 1937 Buick Century tire arm. That's right. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Are you looking at the world through rose-colored sunglasses because you joyfully await parenthood? 
Well, here's a message for all future mothers from the March of Dimes, an organization concerned with the problems of birth defects and their preventions. Before your baby is born, it's wise to start taking care of him. Have your pregnancy confirmed as soon as possible. Remember the first 12 weeks after conception are the most crucial in the development of your unborn child. Eat a well-balanced diet. Exercise.